0: everyone, this is the Showborn East center podcast. This is Dr. Benner here with Scott Bauman. And today we're going to be talking about uh, next part in our patellofemoral instability, patellofemoral dislocation series. This is our fourth episode of this series. And last time we talked about surgical technique for patella realignment surgery. If you haven't listened to that one yet, a lot of surgical pearls, For the surgeons in the group, and today we're going to pivot to rehabilitation for this group and uh, talk about how do we get these patients back, how do we avoid surgery, and if we do an if we end up doing an operative uh, procedure, how do we move forward from a therapy perspective?
1: Now I may I may be a little biased with this because we're talking about a rehab topic with me being a a physical therapist as well, but we're going to have Bill on today, and he was on for our rehab after contralateral ACL reconstruction episode, so uh, we're excited to have Bill back and talk about this topic. Bill, welcome to the podcast again.
2: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, just as we started off and we talked about the evaluation of these with Dr. Benner, I want to ask you some similar questions when it comes to the evaluation. So first and foremost, how often are you seeing these from a rehab perspective?
2: Yeah, so um, as Dr. Benner pointed out in one of the prior episodes, we're seeing this volume of patellar dislocations much less frequently than we are with our ACLs. So, you know, it's kind of like a 10% mark that we put on it. So for every 10 ACLs, we may see one patellar dislocation. That volume may have increased a, a little bit over time, just with more year-round sports and exposure to injury, and we're kind of seeing things happen a little bit more often. But again, it's one of the less common things we see in the office, especially when we compare it to our ACL volume that we see.
0: So, Bill, when you see these patients, what are some common things you're looking for when with your initial evaluation of a, a patella dislocation patient?
2: Yeah, in our office, we're, uh, as the PT, we're actually really fortunate to be able to first one to take a history from the patient, and that usually will guide us down a path of uh, considering patella dislocation as one of the differentials. Um, so, we, you know, we do a really good job of, of trying to get patients in quickly after an injury. If they call and, and have an acute injury, we can get them in pretty quickly, and then they have a pretty good recent memory of the, the history of their injury. So we go there with, you know, is this a big deal injury? Did you have something happen? You went from being normal to not normal in an instant, Um, not something that you could return to play right away, run off on the sideline. Sometimes it's pretty urgent where they might seek uh, urgent care or an emergency department. When we see them in the office, then, if we're starting to think that way, we're looking at, uh, you know, have you ever had a prior injury like this to this knee or the other knee? Because as you discussed in the classification system, we can have patients who have congenital uh, anatomy that predisposes them to prior patellar dislocations. So some patients may say, yeah, this has happened to my knee a couple times. Um, We look for things on exam like J signs. uh, But then we start working them up with x-rays. We're certainly interested in their X-ray views compared to their opposite knee and alignment uh, things with lateral X-rays for patella height and Merchant view X-rays for their patella position compared to the opposite knee, and those are kind of the initial workup parts. Um, but certainly, the history is a big key
0: component of that. And Bill, is the history is is the history different depending on whether it's a patient's first time dislocation or whether they've had multiples?
2: Absolutely. the 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 first time dislocators seem to come in uh, urgently. Uh, they went from again being normal to not normal pretty quickly. It's very painful. Knees diffused. They can't really weight bear. They might be immobilized. It seems like patients have had um, prior dislocations and then they dislocate again. Especially if they have those type three and fours um, that you described in an earlier episode, where it may not be quite as traumatic. Um, they can reduce the dislocation on their own. They don't get quite so swollen. They can still bear weight. Uh, so those patients look quite different in an initial evaluation from the acute first-time dislocators.
1: Now, let's stick with the first-time dislocators, the one that you're, you're seeing for that first-time injury. And with the presentation, it seems like they're going to be more swollen and just acutely flared up. What type of rehab uh, exercises and things are you looking to to address in that acute time period? Really, we,
2: we try to address things with any of our acute knee injuries. I mean, if they arrive with weight-bearing restrictions or they're not putting weight under the leg, if they're immobilized, they're on crutches, the knee has a big effusion from a recent injury, they're definitely gonna have stiffness, they have apprehension of movement. So we kind of address those things pretty consistently, whether it's an ACL tear, patella dislocation, any of those kind of uh, MCL uh, injury, isolated MCL injuries, those big three that we talk about. Uh, we work on an effusion, we work on extension first. Um, you know, Dr. Bennard had mentioned in a prior episode, uh, the, one of the differences on exam or presentation we see with these patients is they can get their knee straight pretty easily. Um, so when I bring a patient back and take a history on them and get them on a treatment table and we're trying to start to examine their knee, if they can lay, have their knee lay flat or if we can get them into, into any kind of past straight extension, I'm already starting to think more patellar dislocation than ACL. So from a rehab standpoint, Scott, to answer your question, you know we're we're working a little bit more on leg control and effusion to help their flexion versus with like an ACL, we're working on extension to get the ACL stump out of the way, get it to the point where they can actually get their knee to go straight. On these uh, patients with patellar dislocations, they just don't have that problem. It's, it's really uncommon to see somebody who can't straighten their knee with just an isolated patellar dislocation.
1: Now, sticking with these first-time dislocators, and your plan is non-operative treatment, so you get these from the docs, and and they're deeming it as a non-operative case, and they're not uh, discussing surgery at this time. When you're progressing them with the range of motion, their leg control, what does that timeline look like when you're progressing them from that acute time period to more of the intermediate and late-stage rehab? It can be a couple of weeks, just like any acute traumatic
2: injury, you know, you, the body really ramps up the inflammation from the injury itself. So again, normally we, we try to get these patients into the clinic. We have, you know, see them as quickly as possible. So we may see them within a couple of days of their injury itself. And then it may be two weeks before we see them back. So during that time, again, effusion control, leg control, gait training, not really working a whole lot on um, an extension, not really working a whole lot on, on flexion or leg strength or anything like that. So in the acute phase, it's really just, can we get them back to kind of normal looking with, with gait and uh, calm the effusion down that they created? And that should really restore a lot of range of motion, just make them feel more comfortable, especially if this is gonna be a non-operative case or we're gonna make a run at non-operative care for the time being, you know, those are the early goals that we have for these patients.
1: Now, let's assume this patient is an athlete and wants to get back to some type of sporting activity. What does that look like for you when, you, when you're when you hitting that late stage in the rehab process? What is your criteria for getting these patients back to sport? What does that timeline from injury look like? And is there anything specific to this population with patellar dislocations that you look out for when it comes to return to sport? Yeah, so the uh,
2: return to sport criteria, again, is very similar to... our our return to sport criteria for any injury or any surgery. You know, there's there's safety concerns of, can I hurt myself again in the same way I hurt myself before? And then there's performance concerns of, well, if I can play, am I going to be as good as I was before? So, you know, we always follow uh, a knee symmetry model for range of motion, no effusion, good leg control, normal gait, Equal quad strength. You know, we use a 10% side to side with isokinetic testing in our office, isometric testing, or any kind of hop testing that we might do. If they can achieve those things, uh, then we really start to transition them back to practice first. You know, solo isolation drills for whatever their sport is before moving them to competitive practice, and then eventually to scrimmage type scenarios, and then and then games. And then we have to, you know, we have to watch the scheduling of return to sport with. The patients so that if they practice or play on a Monday, how do they feel and look on a, on a Tuesday? So it might be a reduced schedule of every other day, every third day, those kind of things. But really, if we're going non-operative care and they've achieved normal range of motion, no effusion, normal strength, uh, we let them progress back to sport pretty, you know, as quickly as their knee allows them to, to get back to that level of intensity and frequency.
0: What's that timeline look like, Bill, from the time they come and see us, if we see them within a couple of days of injury to return to full sports?
2: Yeah, if these patients are non-operative, where, the, where there's not an indication to do any surgery on them, it's probably more like a four to six-week time frame. But the first couple of weeks is going to be just getting that effusion down, getting the motion back, getting them walking normally. That usually takes a couple of weeks, and then if we see them pretty quickly, we, you know, they don't lose a lot of strength because we, you know, we don't we don't restrict their weight bearing, we don't brace them. You know, there's not there's not a big period of atrophy or disuse that they're going to go through. So the recovery time for that patient, you know, can be as quick as four weeks. You know, four to six weeks is probably pretty typical for that.
0: So let's move on to those patients who do end up having surgery. We talked in the last episode about what the different options are. It could be as simple as a scope for loose body removal, something like that, uh, all the way up to uh, tibial tubercle osteotomy realignment. All those, and we kind of talked about those individually last week: medial side retinacular imbrication and lateral retinacular release. Uh, as a soft tissue proximal operation, and then for people that have predisposing anatomy, coupling that with tibial tubercle osteotomy with either distalization or medialization or both. So talk about the early post-operative time period for each of those and how you can compare and contrast them.
2: Yeah, so the uh, soft tissue only uh, repairs, so that would be the medial imbrication, lateral release where there's no osteotomies performed, there's no bone procedure involved. Um, Those patients do really well pretty quickly. I've almost gotten to the point now where we're kind of treating them like they had an arthroscopy only. I mean, we can really progress them based on as, as quickly as they're allowed to progress. So they're immobilized for a period of time. We have our patients... Spend the night in the surgery center to get some benefits of uh, what we can do there. They go home, keep their leg elevated for the first week. Uh, these are for all all three of the uh, surgeries that we can do. Um, put them in a CPM machine, keep them, keep a crow cuff on their knee, work on leg control, work on flexion. But the soft tissue-only repairs really can progress as quickly as they're able. So they, they're immobilized um, when they're walking for the first week, but those are the group that really get out of the immobilizer pretty quickly. So it might even be at you know after that first visit or at that first visit, a week after surgery, we're working on gait training without the immobilizer on. If they have leg control difficulties, we'll keep them in the immobilizer a little bit longer, but on average, the soft tissue, uh, medial invocation, lateral release, Surgery patients will recover and get out of the immobilizer within the first two weeks. Uh, then it's just a matter of getting the effusion to, to resolve enough where they can have a full uh, full flexion in their knee, and then it's on to strength training. So again, I kind of treat those patients like a like a rehabbing a scope where there's not really anything that's holding us back from letting them get better at letting them get better as quickly as they're able. Um, so we kind of put them through that process. And again, even with that surgery, it's almost the same time frame for those non-operative patients where it can be four to six weeks. I know that sounds, sounds pretty quick, but I've had patients, if we see them pretty quickly, they have surgery, they don't atrophy much, they can get normal range of motion and be, be testing with good strength, even six weeks after a, a soft tissue realignment.
0: And I think that's important to keep in mind about that specific surgery is the, the the relative quick progression that some of those patients go through compared to how long the non-surgical treatment plan takes. That definitely comes into our surgical decision-making when it comes to first-time dislocators. Are we going to go ahead and do a surgery on them or not? Uh, we do keep in mind when the patient's next sport is, what their best sport is, whether they want to return competitively quickly and on what kind of schedule. So if we have somebody come in that ha- that is, you know, two and a half months before the start of a season. And they're maybe going to be a senior in high school and they want to play collegiately. Uh, then we're then we're kind of left to balance if we go ahead with non-surgical treatment is that going to take four to six weeks if we just do an imbrication and release is that going to decrease their risk of redislocation and not really lengthen their recovery period very much and uh, I think that's a real uh you know this is getting back into the surgical technique thing but I think that's a real pearl that 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 really separates that from MPFL reconstruction for example I think MPFL reconstruction we don't really do that but for people that do I I think the people the the patients who would be most appropriate for that would be the same kind of patients that we do the medial imbrication lateral release on the people that don't have predisposing anatomy and you just want to reestablish connection to those medial soft tissues to tether the patella to keep it from going out with medial with, with MPFL reconstruction that's going to be the end of their season if they only have a couple months left before uh, before their their last season you know starts so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as it relates to to uh, competitive athletes and uh, what their return to sport timeline is going to be like.
1: Sticking with the timeline conversation, let's move to the more bony procedures. We're talking about the triots and distalizations now. And to go back to, to the surgical technique episode, this is the one where a patient would need to medialize the tibial tubercle, which would be a triot, and then if it, the patient was showing to have a higher-than-normal patella or patella alta, we would distalize those patients. So, Bill, can you speak to that timeline? You've talked about as quickly as four to six weeks for the soft tissue Medium application, a lateral release procedure. But what about when you start doing the bony procedures and, and start moving the tubercle? How does that change your timeline, not only in the acute and intermediate phase, but also when it comes to return to sport?
2: Yeah, these patients definitely take longer, uh, mostly because we have to kind of respect some of the healing of the, of the, the osteotomy that was performed. I would say that the triots, uh, we feel more comfortable with getting them moving a little bit more quickly. Um, I know, Dr. Benner, you described that surgical technique um, on the last episode, and, you know, Dr. Shelburne has described it's almost like you're pivoting the tubercle as opposed to completely detaching it, and like we do with the distalization. So um, we've been able to move those patients a little bit quicker. We don't really limit their flexion in the first week like we do the distalizations. And so we we do a lot more two-tolerance exercise for flexion on the on the elmsley triop procedures, um, we feel comfortable with the fixation that, that you guys perform when you do the surgery and they can get out of the immobilizer as soon as they have good enough quad control that they don't feel like their knee's going to give out and buckle from underneath them. So we, in early phase, Scott, we, we continue the same routine for all three of these that first week, the triad patients will uh, restore uh, flexion that's better earlier than the distalizations. Um, they can, they have uh, typically have better leg control where they can fire their quad, do a straight leg raise. We get them to the point where they can lift their leg without a lag, or, you know, ideally we want them to do an active heel lift where they can fire their quad, pop their heel up off a treatment table, and that's our criteria really for starting to evaluate if they can wean out of the immobilizer. The distalizations, um, where the piece is completely cut free, moved, placed, and fixed with the hardware... as Dr. Benner described again on on one of our prior episodes, we do limit their flexion uh, in the early recovery period just because it it, it takes a little bit more to heal that that osteotomy and and heal that bony piece in place. So we have to slow down the flexion. We don't let them go to tolerance. It's more like a 90-degree limit the first week in our CPM, and then we can progressively increase their bending on on the subsequent weeks. So the triop patients might be in an immobilizer for two three weeks these patients might be in an immobilizer for three four weeks Uh, the other benefit of of how our clinic operates is we're getting x-rays on these patients pretty routinely in the early recovery period so we'll get x-rays at one week we'll get x-rays at two weeks we'll get x-rays at a month we'll get x-rays at two months and you know even before i might see that patient for a therapy visit i'm getting x-rays i'm meeting with dr benner and dr shelbourne reviewing the healing of the osteotomy, or of the, uh, of, you know, over the with the distalization or the trio procedure, and we're evaluating how that how that approximated bone is healing, and that helps give us some guidance on, you know, we we need to slow things down still. We're not happy with how the healing looks on X-ray, or if we feel pretty comfortable with the fixation and the healing, where we can start to let the patient do more.
0: Speaking of doing more with these patients, let's talk about the intermediate stages of rehab. So now we've gotten these patients where they're out of their initial range of motion restriction period. They've gotten out of the knee immobilizer where they're walking without any kind of assistive device or any restriction on their range of motion. Uh, What becomes the focus at that point?
2: Yeah, once we're past the the stage of concern for healing, then we can really uh, progress them on flexion-specific exercises. As we've mentioned before on an initial examination, these patients don't really have trouble with extension. So, you know, that's sort of a a maintenance exercise during the post-op early and and intermediate period, but the flexion is really the focus of kind of that early intermediate stage. Um, Once the knee has normal range of motion, then we're putting them on our isokinetic machine we're testing their leg strength and we're giving them a progression of single leg strengthening with the goal of getting that involved side the surgery side within 10 percent of the opposite side so you know those are kind of the intermediate goals is return the knee to normal equal to the other side this is pre-return to sports or pre-return to sport activity now that's what i would call more of the kind of the late phase
1: now as you move into that late phase and i know you mentioned about Returning patients to sport and what that criteria look like. Staying with the timing, how would you answer the question of return to sport time for the patients that are undergoing each of the three surgeries, whether it be the soft tissue medialization lateral release, the triat, and then lastly the most invasive distalization? What what's that look like in terms of months? Yeah, the the uh, soft tissue only procedure, I'm I'm writing goals to try to get them back
2: to where they can participate in sports or or be normal enough to participate in sports maybe by six, eight weeks after surgery. For the triots and distalization, it's more like four to six months after surgery, just because we have to slow them down in that early recovery period. And then it really delays the return of flexion and it really delays the return of leg strength. So, you know, it takes longer just because we have to slow everything down from the beginning and respect the healing. Uh, So that's more along the lines of, you know, four, six
1: months versus four, six weeks. Now, this is more of a hypothetical question, but if if you had a patient that had, for example, a a triop procedure where they're medializing the tibial tubercle and they were not able to reach that goal that you had of the four to six months of return to sport, is there a pretty common culprit? Meaning is, is a patient that may take seven, eight, nine months to get back to sport, is that mainly because they're lacking quad strength, they're lacking confidence, it took them three months to get their motion back instead of two. Is there anything you see on a consistent basis or is it really patient-specific? I'd say the
2: thing we see most consistently is the is the quad strength goal. Uh, we do a really good job of, of trying to not slow down range of motion. I mean, I think we're pretty aggressive, as Dr. Benner described with his fixation technique that he uses for these when he does surgery. So we're not put in a corner where we can't work on motion for so long that it's a, a super difficult thing to get back. I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous benefit Um, to work with surgeons who allow us to work on range of motion so aggressively. So I don't normally see a slowdown coming from a loss of motion. It's really more from the return of the quad
1: strength. And I'm glad you mentioned the surgery piece. So this question is really for both you guys. In the previous episodes, Dr. Brenner, you had mentioned that over the past five or 10 years, you feel like the fixation, especially with the distalization, has been improved, and you're getting better fixation. So the question would be, based on that, Would you anticipate seeing patients get back faster because of that, or would you see patients maybe go a little bit faster in the early going because of that that better fixation, or is that just to prevent re-injury? Can you both speak to what that fixation looks like and how that may affect rehab?
0: Yeah, early on in Dr. Shelbourne's experience, I think he was doing uh, one screw for tibial tubercle osteotomies, and that's what he did back in his fellowship in the early 80s. Uh, And then he started having some trouble with healing at the distal part of the osteotomy, so then he went to two screws, and I think that's uh, what a lot of people use for fixation. People are really hesitant to put a plate on the front of the tibial tubercle because they worry about hardware prominence, especially in uh, in thinner athletes because there's not much soft tissue over the tibial tubercle anteriorly, and I don't particularly want to put it there either. However, I don't find that to be as big of an issue as people might think it is, um, so I follow Dr. Shelbourne's lead on using uh, a one-third tubular plate on the anterior portion of the tibial tubercle in medializations and triots, and then using a T-plate from a small frag fracture repair set uh, for distalizations. For me, I also then... I was always using just position screws, just putting the screws in place without really getting as good a compression. I was just kind of holding it down with my hand and then putting screws in. And then I started to use lag screws like I would in a, in a fracture where I overdrilled the proximal cortex of the of the tibial tubercle to allow the screw to slide through the, the actual piece, the tibial tubercle piece and uh, compress it against the rest of the bone. So I feel like I've been getting, once I started using lag screw technique, I've been getting better fixation and that has led to a difference and people feeling like they can a little bit more aggressively move their leg and even lift their leg uh, on the day of surgery or even in the early time after surgery um, that they can actually lift their leg when it's really just held together by a plate and screws. I also make a, you know, some of this is because I do arthroplasty surgery as well. Um, In arthroplasty surgery, when we're talking about increasing exposure but doing tibial tubercle osteotomies one of the important technical notes is to use a longer and a little bit thicker osteotomy so i use an osteotomy that's about a centimeter thick and it's about six centimeters long it's a pretty big osteotomy and for sports medicine surgeons who aren't used to making big incisions and using a lot of metal uh, who are doing a lot of things arthroscopically I think maybe they feel like they want to stay away from something like that, but now having done it that way for a while, I think the plate fixation is really important and that lag screw technique to get increased um, increased fixation with a longer, thicker osteotomy has been more robust fixation, has made me more apt to be able to push a little bit harder on range of motion. and I do feel like that's made a difference in patients getting back range of motion and early leg control.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree with that on the uh, on the rehab side of things. I mean, we we have had patients in the past, especially with distalizations, who we we used to let them go to tolerance, and they don't always feel if they're going too far. So we would take some X-rays at you know two weeks post-op, and all of a sudden we'd see that their their uh, tibial tubercle is no longer under the hardware. They they pulled the tubercle uh, out from underneath, and they didn't even know when that happened. So that's that's caused us to kind of slow those those patients down a little bit further, but then I think the change in fixation that Dr. Benner's brought to the table has really allowed us to, to feel comfortable with what we're doing on the rehab side and not have to immobilize these patients.
1: So, Bill, in a more general sense, what would you say the biggest difference is when it comes to the rehab process for those three surgeries that can be performed, including the soft tissue realignment of the, the triad, and the triad, the distalization?
2: Yeah, the biggest difference is, is timing. Uh, the concepts are all the same they, uh, the patients come in normally with full extension limited flexion limited leg control and infusion. effusion the soft, the biggest difference timing wise would be the soft tissue procedures can discharge the immobilizer quicker they have better leg control quicker they get flexion back faster they can get their strength back and return to sports quicker the triot and the distalization the, those procedures were that that were osteotomies or bone you know the bones involved we just have to slow down that initial time frame, which then delays the recovery of of the secondary things: flexion, leg control, leg strength, and return to sport. So, and that's those are kind of the three the, the differences between those three different procedures are really more is really more timing than anything.
0: So in closing things up here, Bill, what do you think are your final take-home messages as you've been able to use your experience over more than a decade here at Shelbourne E-Center treating a lot of these patients? What's the take-home messages that you really want everybody uh, that's listening to, to have?
2: Yeah, so I was thinking about this um, over my time that I've been in the clinic. Even, even I, I mean, I was there partly when this was being developed, and, and I've just learned so much over the time that I've taken care of these patients and, and seen these patients with, with you, Dr. Benner, Dr. Shelbourne. Um, in the clinic, is that a patella dislocation is not as common an injury as as people typically think. And, you know, it's not something that you have seen over and over again. Certainly in our hands, which, where we're seeing knees only, it's still only about 10% of our volume, which is is relatively low. The, the history, uh, exam, the x-ray findings, those are all different from other types of knee injuries, um, and it's helped us develop our treatment algorithm, including three different kinds of, of surgeries to take care of these Intelligence locations, you know, it's really not a one size fits all treatment plan, and I think that's that's the take home message: is you know indications for non operative treatment, and then if it's surgical treatment, determining which which uh, of those three surgeries that we we have uh, uh, developed uh, to take care of that patient's problem specifically, and the implication that that has on their rehabilitation. So it really turns into a much more customized way to take care of that patient's specific. patella patella dislocation, and it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all.
0: You know, with that customization approach, I think it, it just highlights how important it is to have a good relationship between the surgeon and the physical therapy staff. I would feel very, very uncomfortable doing any of these surgeries and then sending them to an outside therapist that I didn't know and not having a great open line of communication. These patients, we have a lot more contact with our therapy staff, even in office that we see every day, uh, than than ACLs even, or than other t- than other types of. Uh, you know, scopes and things that we do pretty often. You know, a lot of those things are, are pretty standard and straightforward, and there there is more of a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to ACL rehabilitation and scope rehabilitation, as opposed to the patellofemoral dislocations. Like I said, everyone's a little bit different. Everyone needs to be able to understand the theory behind why we did one surgery versus another, how far we can push them based on what we found in surgery, um, how far we can progress them based on whether or not they're tolerating it. Sometimes I'll tell t- t- you know you all to only move them to 70 or 80 degrees because that's what we got in in clinic and or excuse me in the operating room and then you'll come back and say hey they're getting to they're getting to 70 or 80 easy they don't feel like they're having any tension on that on that um, fixation at all their x-ray looks good can i push them another 10 10 15 degrees and the answer is usually yes but we don't if we don't have that back and forth communication that open open contact uh, I, w- I think it would be much more difficult to take care of this population in particular. Yeah, and I, I, I
2: can echo that from my side. If I'm, if I'm seeing patients from a doctor who did, or a surgeon who did a patellary alignment, and I have no background on that, on that surgery that patient their x-rays the guidelines it would be incredibly difficult to to confidently take care of that patient postoperatively. so i agree with you 100 on the on the collaborative effort on taking care of these patients not only from the beginning but the post-operative x-rays knowing what you got in surgery you knowing what we're doing with them in, in therapy uh, i think it's really the best way to go
1: Excellent. So Bill, just a thank you again for coming on here. I know this is the second time we've had you and, and uh, you did excellent the first time. And I think everybody got a, a good insight into the rehab after ACL reconstruction for that one. So I think this one's going to be the same case. So I appreciate you being on here again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and I look forward to next time.
0: Hit us up on our social media if you'd like to keep in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us at the SKC Podcast. We have a Facebook and YouTube uh, Facebook page and a YouTube channel as well. Or you can email us at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. You can find the Showborn center Podcast wherever you get your podcasts on all major podcast networks. Also, if you'd leave us a comment and or a review, we would appreciate that as well for others that come behind you. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and we'll see you again next week.